We are continuing our study in the book of Galatians chapter 4. And last week was such a monumental study. Um, If you haven't done so, I'd encourage you to listen to it if you weren't here. Uh, Abba, Father, there's two sendings. God sent the Son into the world so that he might ransom people to be members of his family. But there was a second sending. God sent the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit was sent not to the world. The Holy Spirit was sent to a specific place. He was sent into the hearts of believers. God sent the Spirit of God into the hearts of believers so that Romans 5, 5, he might pour out, the Spirit of God might pour out the Father's love into our hearts. And so that the believer, his heart would be so filled with God's undeserved, limitless love of God that he would cry out, Abba, Father, this intimate, affectionate, heartfelt cry of a child to his dad, that would be the experience of every Christian. That is why God sent the Spirit, because he wants believers to know how much he loves us, and he wants us to know and experience that in our hearts. And the only time the word Abba is used three times in the Bible, Romans 8, Galatians 4, and once in Mark chapter 14, and that's when Jesus cried out, Abba, Father. And when did he cry out, Abba, Father? It was in the Garden of Gethsemane, right? The night of his crucifixion. As he contemplated the, the, the experiencing the wrath of God, being separated from God, experiencing hell on the cross, he was sorrowful to the point of death. He was sweating blood And yet with that great heaviness and and, and grief and sorrow melting his heart, Jesus said, Abba, Father, because he was so filled with the Father's love. The Father was telling him, you're my beloved son. You're my child. You're my son. I love you. Though these sinful men will curse you and damn you, make fun of you, they will hurt you, scar you, and crucify you. You are my son. I love you. Now, how did Jesus experience that? Because the Spirit of God was in his heart, and that's for all of us. That in this world, we live in a fallen world as fallen beings. We're sinners living in a sinful world. There is suffering, sorrow, and grief. That is an unavoidable reality of life. And at those times, we question, does God love me? Does God care? Is God near? But that's when, when we look at Jesus, God sends the Holy Spirit into our hearts, and the Spirit pours out the Father's love, and he says, I am here with you. I know what you're going through. I love you. And the demonstration The proof of my love is that I sent my son Jesus to die on the cross for your sins. And in that way, he pours out his spirit and then we cry out, Abba, Father. And in that way, we experience that we are no longer slaves, that God is not a judge, a distant ruler, a king that we have to serve and we are subservient to. That experience makes us, makes the reality makes us to know the reality that we are in his family, we are adopted, we are his sons, and we are 
co-heirs with Christ. That in that eschaton, when Christ returns, when our faith shall be sight, we shall see Jesus as he is, we will receive every spiritual blessing that was in store for Jesus, God will give to us. That is the reality that Paul was expounding in verses 1 through 7 of Galatians 4, and that was our privilege to study last week. Now, from that height comes a great descent, right? It's a roller coaster ride. It's Paul's at his apex, talking about this freedom and sonship and this privilege. And from verse 8 on, there is this great descent into where the Galatian believers are. They are not in verses 1 through 7. They are not saying, Abba, Father. They are saying, my boss, my employer, my master whom I fear, that's why I obey. That's the reality of what Galatians are experiencing. Therefore, Paul is writing to them. And he is, you know, chapter 1, verse 6, he's astonished at their defection. In verse 11, we will study, he is afraid. He is feared with phobos, phobia on their behalf. Next, next section in, in, in verse 18, Paul is perplexed. He doesn't understand. He doesn't get it. For him, one plus one is equaling five right now. He, it's incomprehensible what is going on with the Galatian believers because of their disloyalty and betrayal, their defection from Christ. So from 1 through 7, that high, we go to the valley of 8 through 11. Galatians chapter 4, if you have your Bibles, if you'd open, and if you would stand for the reading of God's word, Galatians 4, 8 through 11. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not God's. But now that you have come to know God, or rather be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I am afraid I may have labored over you in vain. Please be seated. Now in life, there are decisions and there are decisions. There are decisions that are inconsequential, that are rather insignificant, that do not necessitate a lot of thinking or consideration on our part. What we're going to wear, the church, uh, whether we'll shower or not, um, what we're going to eat after church, um, what movies we're going to see. These are decisions that are uh, very low-level decisions. And then there are decisions in a very small category of decisions that you know are life-altering, right? So decision like whether you would get married or not or who you would get married to, um, I was debating whether to share this or not, so if I offend anyone, I apologize, but the you know, comedian Ed Wong was saying, like, he was afraid of getting married. He was petrified. He really 
was distraught over this decision because he heard that 50% of all marriages are permanent. <laughs> right? They're forever, right? So that caused him to like rethink, right? Okay, so <laughs> there are decisions and there are decisions. Like those kind of decisions, very important. Like lifelong, your life mate. And then there is even a smaller category of decisions. They are life-altering decisions, important decisions, but you are not aware at that time you are making that decision. That's the most frightening thing, right? Like when you're getting married, I hope you know, right? This is a very important decision. But frightening thing is there are some decisions in life you only know in hindsight that that was a life-altering decision. Uh, this happened to a man named Charles Robert Jenkins. The name might ring a bell to a few of you. He was a U.S. Army sergeant in 1965. He was assigned to patrol the demilitarized zone, the border between North and South Korea. It was January 4, 1965. The Vietnam War was starting up, and he was afraid that he might be reassigned to combat duty in Vietnam. So after a night of binge drinking beer, that morning he made an excuse that he wanted to investigate a sound, and he made a decision that changed and altered the course of his whole life. He defected to North Korea. He voluntarily, willingly defected and, and went to North Korea and surrendered to the North to a North Korean soldier that was patrolling on the other side. He uh, wrote in his book, um, immediately he knew he made a terrible mistake. He wrote, I made a lot of mistakes in my life, but that was the worst mistake anybody has ever made. That's for sure. In words, I can express the feelings I have towards North Korea, the harassment I got, the hard life. For 39 years, six months and four days, he was trapped in a bizarre Stalinist state, hungry, persecuted, suffering. He recounts an experience where they found a tattoo in his arm that said U.S. Army, and North Koreans held him down and they cut off his tattoo with scissors without anesthesia. Right. He said in his words, it was hell. Right. He said, thinking back, I was a fool. I mean, he voluntarily went. After 39 years, there was, uh, through some uh, di diplomatic way, he, he was brought back to the States. Well, uh, that's a horrific thing. 24-year-old young man making a foolish decision and his whole life has been marred. Horrible decision. Well, this is the scenario for the Galatian believers. Right? That was what the Galatians were toying with and they didn't understand the significance of what they were doing. They were blind to what they were contemplating in terms of their decisions before them. And not only that, this is a reality for some of you today. And I fear for many of you today that many of 
those in the church today and even our church are on the cusp of making a tragic mistake. And the dangerous thing is we are not aware of how great, how significant a decision is before us. And what is at stake is not 39 years, four months, and four days. What is at stake is eternity. This is why Paul is astonished. Paul describes his emotional state. Right? He, he shares with them where his heart is. I am astonished that you are turning away, betraying the one who called you to himself. He is uh, afraid for them, verse 11. And then verse 20 of Galatians 4, he is perplexed about them. Now, some people might say, wait, Paul, you're overreacting here. I mean, Paul, you got to relax. You're kind of like my mom who's afraid of everything, right? She's like scared and petrified. I go out for a run or I go out for a bike ride or I go for to see a movie. My mom's afraid and worried and she can't sleep. Paul, you're making a mountain out of a molehill. Much ado about nothing. These people, they're just interested in the Jewish calendar, right? It's not a big deal. They, they want to observe a special day, right? They want to observe special weeks. And some seasons for them are more important than others. And some years are more important than others. What is the big deal? Everybody has different preferences. Some people are adamant that they must celebrate their birthday on their birthday. Some people, they don't really care, right? My birthday is on Tuesday. Well, let's wait till Friday. I can get my cake then, right? Some people are adamant, getting their Christmas gifts open on Christmas Day. Right? Families like us, let's wait till the after Christmas sale, save money, <laughs> and we'll open our Christmas. We'll start a new tradition. We'll open a week later, right? So people are different. Paul, you're making a big deal out of nothing. No, Paul is, is Paul making a... Uh, a mountain of a molehill? Is this a, a secondary issue? Is this a preference issue? Uh, let me share with you what um, Professor D.A. Carson said. In, in May 2007, in the first Gospel Coalition Conference, he exposited uh, 1 Corinthians 15, uh, verses 3 through 11. And this is, you know, this is after 14 chapters of Paul rebuking the Corinthians. I mean, I'm not going to belabor the point of all the issues that Paul addressed in his lengthy letter to the Corinthian, possibly the Corinthians church, right? Because there were so many problems in that church. But at the end of the letter, he highlights the reason for their problems. And he says, For I delivered to you as a first importance what I also received. This is the first importance that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James and the, all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, 
because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I work, and this is the power of the grace of God. When grace pierces and breaks through a person's heart, this is the result. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is within me. And whether then it was I or they, so we preach and so you believed. And based upon this text, D.A. Carson um, used eight words to describe what the gospel is. And he said, first of all, gospel is Christological. The gospel centers on the person and the work of Jesus Christ. So the gospel is centered on Jesus, on who he is and what he has Done. So in our message, as we believe the gospel, as we proclaim the gospel, this is the essence of what it means, what the gospel is. Who is Jesus and what has he accomplished? Second word is, it is theological. The gospel tells us that our sin is first and foremost centered against theos, theological, against God. It is, the gospel is God-centered. Right? So much so, Piper has that book, God is the Gospel. Right? He, 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 when we get the Gospel, we get God. When we reject the Gospel, we are rejecting God. So again, the Galatians, they're not turning away from an ideology. They're not rejecting a doctrine or a, a set of propositional truths. When they are rejecting the gospel, they are rejecting the God of the gospel. The gospel is theological. Thirdly, the gospel is biblical, meaning the gospel is essentially the message of the whole Bible. Right, that's Carson's I mean, great contribution to Christianity. Really, essentially, the whole Bible is about one message centered around one person, which is Jesus. The old points to Jesus, the new points to Jesus, Revelation points to Jesus. I was in my sabbatical, I visited Milton Vincent, and he was telling me, I asked him his philosophy of ministry, and he said that their church is centered around the Bible, but in their study of the Bible, what they discovered, that the center of the Bible is Jesus, Right? They were studying the messages of Scripture, but they discovered that the main message of the Scripture is the person and work of Jesus Christ. It is centered on the Bible, and we see that in Luke 24, 25 through 27. After Christ's resurrection, he's walking with the disciples who are clueless as to the stranger's true identity. He opens up the Old Testament, and beginning with the prophets, he, he does hermeneutics, he does exegesis, he explicates from the Old Testament how they all spoke of Jesus Christ, who he is and what he will do and how he has done it. And the apostles in Acts 2, what did Peter do? The apostolic message was quoting Old Testament and connecting it to Jesus. This is what the Old Testament prophets said, and this is who Jesus is, whom you crucified. And all the New Testament epistles are likewise. They quote extensively from the Old Testament to highlight that the main message of the Bible is the gospel. Therefore, the gospel is biblical. 
Fourthly, it is apostolic that this gospel came to us not through angels. It didn't come to us in a golden tablet. It didn't come to us devoid of human agency. That God gave through Christ this message to the apostles. They wrote it down in the Bible and we receive it from Christ through the apostles in the scriptures. I'm going to go fifthly, it's historical. It's based on history. So Paul is saying, Corinthians, Jesus appeared to 500 people. He didn't appear to a small select group with Gnostic knowledge, hidden knowledge, where you can't question them, right? That, that, that it's some mystical, internal, arbitrary, non-verifiable uh, record. No, it's a historical account. He appeared to more than 500, and some are still alive. You can go and talk to them. You can go and ask them and verify by asking different witnesses and the corroborative evidence you can tell this is a historical event of what happened, his life, death, and resurrection and ascension. Not only that, it is personal. It must be personally believed and appropriated. The seventh word is universal. This gospel is not for a certain ethnic group a certain socioeconomic category, or a certain even gender. It's for every tongue, tribe, people in this world. And finally, it's eschatological, right? It's the, it's the revelation of what God will say at the end times. For believers, we don't have to wonder, what is God going to say to me? What will be the final verdict? We have this, this time travel Right? What is that? Not black hole, but in Star Trek, or, right? You know, you guys know what I'm talking about, right? The wormholes, right? Or you can travel through time. So we have a gospel wormhole where God tells us in advance what we're going to hear when we stand before God on that judgment day. We're going to hear, You're my beloved son. Because I don't see your sins, I don't see any guilt, any transgression. Any wrongdoing whatsoever, all I see is the imputed perfect righteousness of my son, Jesus Christ. Therefore, you are justified, you are accepted, you are loved. Welcome, welcome into your rest and rejoice with, rejoice forever. It's eschatological. It's a, it's a revelation of the end time declaration that, that believers will hear. Now, after stressing that the gospel and this is not really my point at all. <laughs> After stressing that the gospel is disseminated primarily through proclamation, meaning that the gospel is essentially truth. It is, it is doctrine. It is theology. It is intellectual. It is didactic. It, it is idea. It's an idea. After stating all of that, Carson said this. Listen to this. Yet something else must also be said. This chapter, 1 Corinthians 15, comes at the end of a book that repeatedly shows how the gospel rightly works out in the massive transformation of attitudes, morals, relationships, and cultural interactions. As everyone knows, Calvin insists that justification is by faith alone, but genuine faith is never alone. We might add that the gospel focuses on a message of what God has done and is doing 
and must be cast in cognitive truths to be believed and obeyed, but this gospel never properly remains exclusively cognitive. Now, let me read that last phrase again. The gospel must be cast in cognitive truths to be believed and obeyed, but this gospel never properly remains exclusively cognitive. So what he is saying, hearing the rest of the sermon a few times, what he is saying is this, that the gospel is truth, and there are ways to directly undermine and distort this truth. And the way to, the frontal attack of undermining the gospel is to tinker with the theology, right? And so you, um, you try to weaken the idea of Christ's de- deity or his humanity. You try to undermine uh, the virgin birth. You try to destroy total depravity. You try to uh, um, diminish the holiness of God. You, you seek to uh, poke holes in the exclusivity of salvation by faith in Christ alone. Right? There are many ways to God. That's a direct frontal assault on the gospel, but it's not exclusively cognitive. The, doc, the gospel has real-life implications as well, direct implications, and there is a, a backdoor way of undermining the gospel. There is a more, more subvert and, and subtle way under the radar of destroying the gospel. These are the indirect assaults, and um, I'll highlight to you four ways. One is uh, distort the implications of the gospel. Right? Distort the consequences or the demands of the gospel. I'll explain it this way. I, I touched upon it last week. God loves us contra-conditionally. He loves us undeservedly, wholeheartedly. And so there are people who are tempted by homosexuality. So much so, they identify themselves as homosexuals. And they say, God knows my sins. He, ac- he loves me and accepts me. Therefore, as a follower of Christian, as a follower of Christ, I can continue as a homosexual because God loves me. Um, and you can add to that, it's not just a sin among ho- the people who identify themselves as homosexuals, but this is you know, heterosexuals who are engaged in sexual sin. This, there are people who are, who are liars and cheaters and even moralists, and they say, well, God loves me, therefore I can love myself and you must love me. Well, the gospel says, no, that's, you're distorting the implication of the gospel. God loves us unconditionally. That is true. And our heart response, what Christ says at that moment is, Matthew 16, right? Deny yourself. Disassociate yourself from yourself. Repent, renounce of your old self, your former self, your sinful self. God loves you as a sinner. And, bec- and what that produces, his holy love toward us is so great, it causes us to hate our sins, renounce our sins, and repent of our sins and follow Christ. 
And this is not just for those who are tempted with homosexuality. This is for every sin under the sun. That is a direct consequence of the gospel. But when we twist that, then we indirectly undermine the gospel. Secondly, is to reverse the gospel, right? Putting sanctification ahead of justification, the Christian life before salvation. So you are saved if you do this, then you are a Christian, right? If you quit smoking, if you quit drugs, if you quit alcohol, if you start going to church, if you finish reading the Bible, and this is a popular one among some circles, baptismal regeneration. If you are baptized, then God will save you. So much so, I've had talks with these people. They say, if you're on the way to the baptismal tub and you slip and fall and you die, then, oh, well, God's sovereign, you're not saved. You're not a, really? I mean, you're on the way to be dunked and you slip and fall, you have a heart attack, you have a stroke and you die, you're not a Christian? Yeah, too bad, right? Because you're saved by baptism. Well, that is twisting, reversing the gospel. Right? It's not a direct assault on the gospel, but by the implication, they are undermining the gospel. Third way is to, to limit the gospel just to intellectual assent to the gospel. Right? How do you know if you're a Christian? Just verbally agree with the four spiritual laws. Or just pray this prayer. Right? I'll write it down for you. You don't have to even say it out loud. You, can whisper. you don't even have to whisper. Just say it in your heart. Right? As you're driving, driving somewhere quietly, long as in your heart you agree with these points and say it, then you are, you're a Christian. Right? That's just um, a verbal assent, an agreement, intellectual affirmation of these truths makes you a Christian. That's an undermining of the gospel. Now what, what the Galatians are tempted to do here, if not whether they are actually have done it or not, is adding law to the gospel. Adding, adding the law to the gospel, adding obedience to the gospel as a way to be justified, way to be accepted by God. And so particularly here, they're adding Old Testament laws here. These Judaizers, these former, you know, they were possibly Pharisees, men who were devoted to the Old Testament, Torah, they were telling Gentile Christians to be believers. You, mu you must submit yourself to the Old Testament laws, then you are truly Christians. Now, on our context, uh, it goes beyond the law. Adding any law and binding it upon Christians is to indirectly undermine and destroy the gospel in, in man's attempt to improve the gospel, they have destroyed it and are destroying it. They're saying God's grace, love, God's mercy is not sufficient to promote true godliness, genuine maturity, Christ-like holiness. The gospel is not enough, so we must add something to make it better. And in their attempts to make the gospel better, they have destroyed it. Now, uh, I tried to think of another way of explaining this, but I have no other way. I have to repeat myself again. Uh, two quick illustrations to, to maybe illustrate what I'm talking about here and help you understand. This, this happened 
in Galatians 2.14, right? Peter was eating with the Judaizers and he distanced himself with the Gentile believers. And Paul rebukes him publicly. Paul makes a scene in front of the whole church. And Peter could have responded, I'm just eating here, right? Paul, what's your problem? I can't eat. I can't sit down and have a meal at a communion with believers. Why are you making a mountain out of, mo- mountain out of a molehill? And Paul's saying, no, that's not what you are doing. Right? What you are doing is you're not walking in step in line with the gospel. Right? You are undermining the gospel by your hypocrisy because the reason you're not sitting with the Gentiles is not because there was no room at the Gentile table. It's because you're ascribing, you've added the law to the gospel and have made two-tiered Christianity. Right? Those who are second-rate Christians who are still Gentiles and uncircumcised, and there are true Christians who are not just Christians, but they obey the Old Testament. The second illustration is from Acts 15. Uh, I'll briefly share about this. Um, in Acts 15, Paul talks about these men who came and they're, making, they're causing trouble because they're saying you must be circumcised uh, to be a Christian. They have a Jerusalem council. The apostles and elders convene a, a, a meeting to, to deliberate this matter. And their conclusion is, no, we are saved by grace through faith in Christ alone. Do not burden any man with Old Testament law. Right? And Paul says so much, so, says so much in uh, Galatians 5, if you let yourself be circumcised, you are severed from grace. So they make this bold stand on salvation by grace through faith alone. And then in the very next chapter, what does Paul do? Paul has Timothy circumcised as they're going on their missionary journey. He was from a Gentile family. His dad said, ah, circumcision, ah, don't bother with that. We're Gentiles, right? Leave him alone, right? And so he was uncircumcised, and what does Paul do? He circumcises him. What's going on here? They made this bold stand against circumcision, and the leader of the stand turns, and is he hypocritically circumcising Timothy? And we find out as we study that it's that the law, religion, only cares about outward deeds. The gospel cares about the motivation. And it's why you are doing it. That's the key consideration. That's the only consideration. If you are circumcised or if you observe a special day as a means to be accepted by God, to be righteous before God, then you are teetering, you're on the cusp of this great, awful decision where it could lead you to be severed from Christ. But same very things, if you're doing it not to be justified, but you're exercising your Christian freedom, then you are free. You are free to engage in these very things. So whether you're circumcised or not, if your motivation is not to be accepted by God, then you are free. Now, what are some modern-day uh, parallels. I and mean, we don't have this heavy religious culture in our, in our context, so it's kind of hard to find uh, parallels. We don't, especially in Southern California, especially Orange County, California, we're a very irreligious 
culture. So it's difficult to find some parallels. If these work, great. If these don't, then, then forgive me. I think functionally, in certain contexts, these can um, obscure the gospel, if not undermine the gospel. What are some modern-day equivalents? Um, kind of schooling that we choose to have our children go through. Uh, is it homeschooling, public school, or private school? And so they make it a moral issue, an ethical issue, a, a sanctification issue. Right? A certain way of educating our kids is the God-accepted way. There's actually a whole philosophy on parenting on growing kids God's way. And what is God's way? If you have infants, you schedule feed them. You don't demand feed. So if you demand feed, you're not doing it God's way. You're doing it, you know, the world's way or the sinful way. But if you schedule feed, that's God's way, right? And so in that, there's an undercurrent of diminishing the gospel or obscuring the gospel. Uh, both parents working when you have young children, right? You can approach that as freedom, personal conviction, our family decision, or you can make that into a moral, moral or ethical issue, a biblical issue, where it is sinful, if not sin, to do such a thing. How about, let's get the attention of the singles here, right? There's, like a, there's God's way of dating. And what is God's way of dating? Don't call it dating. Call it courtship, right? You do the same thing, but just change the label, then it's okay, right? People have asked me, what is the cornerstone way of dating? And I was like, well, it's God's way, of course, <laughs> right? <laughs> as long as it's not unbiblical. No, there is no biblical way of dating. There is no unbiblical way. There is no, you're doing it wrong, right? Are you a Christian? You're severed from grace. No such a thing. Now, if you approach it and if you bind people, you have to pursue a sister this way or else you are um, sinning against God then you are actually uh, obscuring the gospel. And if you are cemented in that position, then you can be in danger of, of severing, severing yourself from grace and others as well. What about politics? Uh, can you be a Christian and be a Republican, right? Is that possible? Some people will say, That's, no, you can't. How can you be a Christian and be a Republican? Or the other way, or how can you be a Christian and be a Democrat? Well, regardless, we definitely know you can't be a Christian and be a libertarian, right? Be, you know, pro-legalizing, legalizing, you know, illicit drugs. So it, what becomes gospel in the name of discipleship, you disciple a person, and b because you believe a certain thing, you, you disciple your disciples and saying, oh, yeah, Christians can't be Republicans. Right? Or oh, Christians can't be Democrats. And you're passing on and you're adding to the gospel and in that way, you're obscuring it. Maybe a few more. Can, be a, can you be a Christian and be a member of PETA? Right? Can you be a Christian and be a member of the ACLU or the Tea Party? Right? I mean, so on and so forth. These are the secondary ways, the indirect ways, the backdoor ways. The gospel is being obscured or undermined. That's why for Paul, it was not a calendar issue. It was not like days, weeks, seasons, and years. We might look at it on face value and say, Paul, like, don't you have 
more important things to do than stand on calendar issues? And Paul's saying, no, right? what's occurring here is something far more significant because of the theology, of the mindset behind these practices. Now, let's go. That was our introduction. I apologize. Let's go to the passage at hand. Five points, and I try to like put the five points together and make it into coherent, like thematic, linear, like tied in five points. I couldn't do it. So it's just five points of verses 8 through 11, right? Point number one, Paul says, the main reason for our former slavery is this. Verse 8, formerly when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not God's. Paul is saying the fundamental reason for their slavery is because they didn't know God. The fundamental error of unbelievers is that they do not know God. They don't worship God, esteem God, treasure God, glorify their creator and the sovereign Lord of the universe. Not only do they, do they not glorify God, this is the reality of all people. Everyone is a worshiper. Everyone is a glorifier. Everyone esteems something. They are not neutral. When we do not glorify, love, treasure God, we love, glorify, treasure something else, and it's always a created thing centered on ourselves. Instead, they turn to self-worship, the adoration of created things rather than the creator. That's Paul's argument of Romans 1, 21 through 32, right? That mankind rejected God and instead worshiped creation. And by doing so, God gave them over to the lusts of their flesh, so much so they engaged in every sexual sin, so much so they engaged in every deviant sexual sin possible. And in that way, they are enslaved to their own lusts. They think they are free but in the reality, they are slaves. But why are they slaves? Paul says, because they did not know God. I mean, we see a little bit of what the absence of God brings. I, I, I don't really watch these shows because I don't, I don't know, it just doesn't do it for me. But I see their commercials and I see bits and pieces. On A&E, they have a show called Intervention of people who are addicted to drugs and alcohol. And you see, these are, you can't put them in a category of certain kinds of people. It's across the board, every social class, every economic class, education level, doesn't matter. People are enslaved to their lust and they are hurting their family members. Their children are crying and begging, mom, please stop. Dad, please stop. My parents are begging their children to quit this. And they say, no, I love this bottle more than my family. They are enslaved and there is no reasoning with them. And what is the reason? It's because they don't know God. There's a show called Hoarders. Right? Regular people, they open, they open their doors into their homes and their homes are filled 
to the ceiling with just stuff. I mean, all sorts of things. And then in the arc of the story, you find out at some point in their life, they lost a loved one. They lost a wife. They lost their husband. They lost a child. Some tragic event occurred, and they didn't know how to deal with this sorrow, and they became attached and addicted to things, and they can't let it go. And towards the end of the show, they try to clean up the clutter, and they're holding holding on to it for dear life. They will not let go of trash. It's a part of them. And they get angry and they cry because they're, they're, they're enslaved to this stuff that is worthless. But for them, it is their life. So it is not. It's everyone is enslaved to this world if they do not know God. That is the reason. Everyone is a worshiper. Everyone is a slave. That was our former condition. condition. Secondly, but now the reason for our newfound freedom, our newfound sonship, is that now we have come to know God or rather be known by God. No, we didn't go to therapy. We didn't talk to a psychiatrist. We didn't go through some like process of like weeding ourselves away from our addictions. No, what happened where our lives have changed? There's transformation. There is this liberty. There is freedom. There is this intimacy, vulnerability, honesty. What happened? Paul said, well, you know what happened? You have come to know God. Oh, excuse me. Wait a minute. I'm a human being. I'm not God. I'm not Jesus. I misspoke. It's not that you have come to know God. Rather, you have come to be known by God. I love that. Paul catches himself. It's not that you discovered God. You went on this you know, adventure, right? This, this journey to seek after God. That's not what happened. That's not why you've changed. It's because you have come to be known by God. How have we come to be known by God? It's through Jesus Christ. John 12, 45, whoever sees me, sees him who sent me. Colossians 1, 15, he is the image of the invisible, invisible God. Hebrews 1, 3, he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. So we know God not through a system of information, not just words and a page. We know God through the person of Jesus Christ. And how do we know Jesus Christ? Again, the gospel. Because the gospel is the message about the person and the work of Jesus Christ. And through this, we have come to be known by God. And that is so comforting. All right, that is so, I'm sure this has happened to you. You go someplace, maybe a family reunion, and this older person hugs you, right? Caresses your hair, squeezes your cheeks, and say, say to you, man, you've, you've gotten so big, you're so grown up, and you're like, I'm 41 years old, right? <laughs> what are you talking about? But they're like, wow, look at you, right? And you're like, I have no idea who you are, right? I should call the police. This is like <laughs> harassment. But what's going on? They knew you when you were a toddler. They baby, they changed your diaper, right? They fed you food. They took you to Disneyland. But you were a kid. I was a kid. We have no memory, no recollection. But for them, they they loved you then. They cared for you. And it thrills their heart to see you now. 
now on this side of my age, right, I'm experiencing the other side. I go to kids, wow, how you've grown. Look at you now. They look at me, I'm going to call the police, right? <laughs> like, who are you, old man? I'm like, I know you. And they're like, I have no idea who you are. Leave me alone, right? So now it's full circle. Well, this is what's happening. We didn't come to know God, right? He, he knew us before we ever knew God. In Romans 8.29, he foreknew us. And based on that foreknowledge, he predestined us. Based on that predestination, he justified us. Based on that justification, he adopted us all before we had any idea what was going on. And that's our comfort. That is our solace. That is our refuge. That our salvation is not based on us knowing God, but him knowing us. That we forget, but he never forgets. He will always remember. That we lose sight of him, but he never loses sight of us. Our status as his sons is not based on our efforts to seek or know him, but it's based on his full and complete knowledge of us. John 10, I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep. I lay down my life for the sheep that I know. My sheep hear my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life. 1 Corinthians 8.3, if anyone loves God, what does that mean? It means you are known by God. All right? So if you love God today, that means because God knows you. And there are two words for Greek, two words in the Greek for know, Oida and gnoskos, I've said this a few times. There are, in in our verses today, verse 8 and 9, know occurs three times. Verse 8, right? And then you did not know God. Verse 9, know God known by God. Those are two different words. When When we didn't know God, it's the word oida, intellectual knowledge. We didn't know God. But we are, we know God now and we are known by God. And that is gnoskos a different word, and that word means a personal knowledge, an experiential knowledge, a relational knowledge, right? So I know of, right, I don't know, I know of some famous person, right? Michael Jordan, you know, Kobe Bryant, only basketball players into my mind, right? They're, I know who they are. They don't know me. I don't know relationship, but I know my children. I know my wife. We have a relationship. It's personal, right? It's personal. And that's the gnosko knowledge that God has, us, has, us, has of us, right? He knew oida. He knew us all, always. He knew we existed. But through Christ, he came into a relationship with us. Thirdly, therefore, Paul, this Defection is inexplicable. The inexplicable defection. To him, it is irrational and incomprehensible. How can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of this world whose slaves you want to be once more? We looked last week, elementary principles, another metaphor for the law in a broad way, the law for the Jews, and the law that is in our consciences, how can you turn back, revert back, betray God, 
defect from God to the elementary principles of this world, which are powerless and feeble. Right? NIV says weak and miserable principles. Weak and miserable. Why are you, how can you do this? And again, not that the law is bad. The law is not weak. The law is not evil or sinful. The law is good. But what is the problem? It's our sinful hearts. Right? That's what Paul said in Romans 7. The law is sin by no means. The law is holy, righteous, and good. But the reason law doesn't work for me is because I'm a sinner. And so when law comes, I die. Because all it does is it exposes my sin and it has that weird effect of multiplying my sins, provoking me to sin. When the law says, do not covet, what do I want to do? I want to do everything that is to covet. All I want to do is covet. The law is good telling me what not to do, but my sinful response is always to sin. The weak link in the chain is my sinfulness. These Gentile believers... They turned away from these idols, these gods that were not true gods. And what are they doing? They're not going back to idolatry. They're not going back to, uh, you know, uh, sins of the world. What are they doing? They're turning to moralism, righteousness, to legalism. Right? I mean, do you get that? There are two ways to go astray from God. There are two ways to reject God. Two ways to betray and defect and turn away from God is through sin and through righteousness. Uh, and that's, I, th I think that's what the parable of Matthew 12, 43 through 45, this man is an unclean spirit, evil spirit, is cast out. He is cleaned. His life is restored. And afterwards, seven other demons occupy his body. Right? What is he saying? You get your life in order, whether if it's not replaced by the gospel of Christ, moralism, righteousness, legalism, obeying the law, you're still going astray from God. Paul is saying it's another form of paganism. It's just another way of trying to be righteous before God through your deeds. Another way of going astray from God. I mean... I'm reading, uh, I said this last week, Lord of the Rings. I just finished uh, two, two Towers, and it's getting really good. I'm, I'm uh, enjoying myself uh, very much so, uh, reading uh, Return of the King. I name my, if I have another son, I name him Aragon, right? I name him Strider, another name for him. Um, there's a miserable creature in this story. You guys know him. His name was Smeagol, and now he's Gollum. It's a miserable creature. And he has this thing that he considers precious, and it's the ring. It promises him power. When he puts it on, he's powerful. Yet it has a corrosive effect to him where he becomes enslaved to it. And he becomes a servant to it. And his physical attributes decay and are changed by the ring. That is the effect of the law in the believer's life. The law promises, I'll make you more holy. I'll make you more powerful, more righteous, right? more accepted by God, more accepted by your church, more accepted by others. If you would just submit to my rules and regulations, I will empower you. And you put that ring on and you do feel powerful. 
there is a sens- sensory experience, a, a visceral uh, sh- shot to the system where you do benefit to a temporary level the, the effects of the law, but over time. Right? Seer this into your mind. You will become like Gollum, right? You will lose your hair, right? With some small pieces, you know, remnant as, a, as to make you look more miserable, make you feel more miserable, you will decay and you become ensnared in this power where you become addicted. You can't live without the law. Where so much so, you will not let go of it. And even if Jesus says, it's me or the law, you will say, I'm going to stay with the law and reject Christ. Paul is saying this is what's happening and it's inexplicable. The evidence of defection is verse 10. What is the evidence for Paul? It is you observe days, months, seasons, and years. And it's hard for us to understand. The word observe there is not like a hobby. It's not just like some kind of like passing fancy to the Jewish calendar. No, the word connotes um, watching closely, a, a scrupulous attitude in religious matters, carefully obeying. They are devoted to special days, months, seasons, and years. Therefore, their relationship with God was based not upon the gospel and grace and the mercy of God, adoption as sons. Their relationship with God was based on them obeying rules and rights, uh, rules and lists and rituals. Right? They had a slave mentality where long as they did a good job in doing this, they were okay. They were accepted by God. And Paul is saying, because everything is created twice, because you're doing that to be accepted by God, to be made righteous, you are betraying God. You're turning away from the gospel. A modern-day equivalence might be, if you think I'm okay because I went to church, right? God, leave me alone Monday through Saturday. I paid my dues. I sat under that Pastor James in preaching too long, right? He went, he went beyond time allowed. I sat through that service. I paid my dues, so leave me alone Monday through Saturday. I'm good, right? That's, that's this observance, right? Long as you keep this rule, then you're okay. Or some people think I'm a Christian. Why? Because I go to church on Christmas. I go to church on Easter I'm okay. Do you see how with that mentality, you're relating to God as a slave, as a servant, an illegal transaction, and in that way, you are rejecting, undermining the gospel, what the gospel is not about, whether you come to church or not, right? whether you come on Christmas or not, or Easter or not, whether you go to care group or not, whether you do your quiet time or not, it has really nothing to do, our, our, the gospel has nothing to do with those things. It's all about are you known by God? How do you know you're known by God? Do you love God? Right? Do you want to be here? Do you want to worship him? Do you love the one you're praying to? Right? So that shows, that heart revelation from the gospel shows that these Galatians, they're not just making an honest mistake about the calendar, that they are defecting from God's side to the enemy's side and then therefore, it's the apostle's fear. Point number five, I am afraid I may have labored over you in, in vain. This is, not, this is not a shallow passing emotion. It was felt deep within him. What is his fear? Is it, man, all that for nothing. Right? So I did all that ministry and it's for nothing. And 
So it's a self-centered fear. Is that what Paul's experiencing? NIV has it right. I fear for you that somehow I have wasted my efforts on you. Paul's fear was not that he wasted his time. Paul's fear was for their sake, that my efforts to preach the gospel for you, your hearts were hardened soil. It just bounced right off. Or it was a thorny soil. Right? It, 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 went, it went in and there was a sapling, but it was choked out by the worries and fears of life. So I'm afraid for your sake that you are still in your sins. Now, Paul is writing this because he is, it's not a certainty, it's not a judgment, it's not a conclusion. He's sharing his heart, that he is concerned for them. Here is the heart of a shepherd, and it applies to us as well. Three closing thoughts. Um, if I could speak to the shepherds of our church, of our leaders, are we aware that there are two ways to go astray from God? It's through sin, and it's also through righteousness. It's for a sheep to run away from the fold, but it's also for a sheep to be devoured by a wolf in sheep's clothing within the fold. So Paul's concern here is not these Galatian believers are going back to the lusts of the flesh. They're going back to drunkenness and debauchery and, and carnality. That's not his concern. He's afraid. He's perplexed. He's astonished because they are zealous for righteousness. Because they want to obey the Bible. They want to fulfill the law so much so that they're basing their acceptance by God and all these things. And Paul's concerned because in so doing, they're not going closer to God. They are abandoning God. Our leaders, we have to be concerned for our people who are being lured by the world to sin. But we have to be concerned for ourselves and for our members and all the members for ourselves as well that will be lulled by the law to go away from the gospel. Secondly, um, are you a Christian? There, there's got to be people here. And you don't know the decision that is before you. You think you've already made that decision when you haven't, and you're about to make another and a succession of tragic decisions in your life where you think you're a Christian and you're not? Are you a Christian? What do you base your faith on? Is it because you go to church? Is it because you go to church on Easter and Christmas? What is the basis of your assurance of your salvation? Paul says, our assurance of salvation is not that we know God, but that God knows us. Does God know you? Do you have a relationship with God where you love him? I mean, you just love him. You will do anything. Your life is just seeking God's will and doing God's will. You don't obey to get something back. Right? You don't obey the scriptures. What's in it for me? And look, figuring out your angle. Because you're known by God and therefore you love him, you just want to do God's will, whatever it is, and that is your joy and your delight. Are you a Christian today? What's your assurance of salvation based on? 
If you're unsure, then God says, trust in me now. Run to the cross. Believe in me. You don't have, he's not calling you through, run through hoops and obey all these commands to be saved. He's saying a naked reliance on the mercy and grace of God and the cross of his son, Jesus Christ. A mustard seed of faith of trusting him and you will know God and God will give you a love for him. Thirdly, finally, how are you doing as a Christian? If I were to ask you, how are you as a how's your walk? People respond. I, I did my quiet time. I read the Bible this week. That's how people like, man, being a pastor is kind of awkward, you know, to have fellowship. I'm just asking, how, how are you doing? What are you doing? I, I read my Bible this week. Right? <laughs> what, what, what? You know, I, I didn't see any bad movies. I'm okay. Is that your Christian life? Then that's why you're reacting to me that way. I'm a fellow sinner, right? No, how's your Christian life? Is it based on days, weeks, seasons, and years? And therefore, your Christian life is drudgery. It's slavery. It is without joy. Or is your Christian life based on God's knowledge of you? There is a dawning conviction in your heart that you are a believer, not because of what you have done or are doing, but because of what God has done for me in Christ. And he knows me. And though I am faithless, he is faithful. Though I forget, he will never forget. Though I lose sight of him, he will never lose sight of me. Though I go as a prodigal to the distant country, No, he follows me all the days of my life and he will never, ever, ever leave me nor forsake me. I am never alone because I am known by the Father. That is the testimony of the gospel in the heart of believers. Well, after I pray, we're going to partake in communion. We're going to sing three songs. After the first song, as you are led, go to the elements Partake of them, remembering the cross. Then afterwards, our elder Bob will close for us in prayer. Father, we thank you for this joyful privilege of uh, hearing the gospel preached and partaking of the elements. We commit now this time to you of offering and of receiving the bread and the cup. Uh, May we know through the Spirit, pouring out his love into our hearts, And may the Spirit, and we testify together, Abba, Father, you are so good to us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.